If you did not see on your way in and we posted it online, is just a little disclaimer. Today's message is going to be rated PG-13, all right? So if you are under the age of 13, or at least, let's be honest, if your maturity level is under the age of 13, <laughs> today's message, you might want to go uh, to the patio. Anyway, so uh, here we are. We are in week four of our series called Love Handles, and what we've been doing throughout the last few weeks is we've been looking uh, through, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Four Loves, and we've been looking through the four loves, um, uh, or, or Greek words for love, and uh, kind of different aspects of what those words meant. And so the first week we talked about brotherly love or friendship, and then we talked about last week family love, which is uh, storge, and today we're going to be talking about romantic love, and uh, the word for that is eros. And eros is a, is a word that um, we would probably, in our terminology, we would probably say something like, I'm falling in love, or I have fallen in love. And uh, it's, it's an emotive word for sure, but the end result or the end goal of eros is marriage, and within marriage, there's supposed to be sex. And so we're going to be talking about marriage and sex, and of course, since this is a church, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about it. And so let me just, uh, let me just say this up front, is... If you are with us today and you're not sure about church, you're not sure about Jesus or the Bible, one, you have chosen a fantastic weekend to be here. We are going to have fun, all right? Uh, we talk about sex all the time. No, we don't. Um, but here's my hope, is if, you, if, if, if what you hear today, uh, you, you know, you're not a, a Christian, what you hear today, you just completely disagree with, and in fact, um, you just think is so wrong-headed. Here's my hope. I'm not trying to convince you of anything, all right? That's not my goal. My goal for you is for you to walk out of here and go, I disagree with all of it, and yet, I get where they're coming from, okay? I think they're wrong. Uh, I don't think any of that stuff that they said is true, but I, I guess they're not as narrow-minded and maybe even bigoted as I thought that they were. All right, so that's my hope. I'm not going to convince you of anything. You can disagree with me. That's totally fine. So we're going we're gonna to talk about what exactly the Bible has to say uh, about marriage and sex. And so here's kind of where I want to start is with a thought experiment. Let's imagine that some people landed on this planet from another planet, and they're observing culture. They're observing humanity. And some of the things that they have found that are really important to us are things like family and marriage and sex. And so they say, well, tell us more about that. Where did this come from? What's the purpose of it? What are the rules? Who gets to decide? And so they started to go around and they asked different people on the streets and they get hundreds of different answers. I think that um, we could probably boil down those answers to what is the purpose of marriage and sex and all those big questions really to two categories. Uh, the first category is that, and this is uh, probably the, the popular belief within our culture, is that marriage and sex are something that have been decided. Is that after this long evolutionary process, um, sex is just a part of being able to pass on our DNA, and marriage was this useful tool in order to provide protection and safety along the way. And, and so uh, it, it really is something that um, we, have, we have decided what to do with it right? Sex, there's not really any rules, and so the rules that we set forward are kind of the rules, and so pretty much the rule is be safe, have fun, uh, go and do what you want to do. And then marriage, uh, because marriage is not really something that, um, something that we, it, since marriage is something that we have created, it's more of a social uh, construction, it's more of an institution, because of that, we get to decide how to use it, how to define it, how to redefine it. And so an advocate for this view, I was watching a, a TED Talk as I was doing my research, 
and there's millions of views on this video, and the woman was talking about how we have historically defined marriage as monogamous, but we should redefine it as monogamish. Like, we should be able to kind of have like a free pass, where, you know, okay, you're married, and yes, we're together for life, but there should be occasions when I can go, and I can do as I please, and you can go as you please, because monogamy, way too difficult. Let's just uh, try, you know, part-time to be monogamous. And so the, uh, this advocate would say marriage, sex, something we decide what to do with it in the rules. The second option would be, and this is kind of the biblical worldview, is that it is something that has been discovered, that marriage and sex aren't social constructs, that they are created by God as a gift. And so, um, yes, we may not intuitively know how exactly they're supposed to operate, and so we're supposed to go and discover how they're supposed to be used. And so as a Christian, we believe that's in the Scriptures, and so we go in there and we say, okay, what does the, the owner's manual, God's instruction for marriage and sex, say about this gift that He has given us? And I think if we were to look through it, I, I've come up with through the years, uh, kind of seven purposes of marriage. Now, we're not going to have time to go through all of them, but let me just list them really quick. Uh, I think it's about partnership, it's about pleasure, it's about procreation, prosperity, protection, personal sanctification, and it's a picture. And again, we're not going to have time to go through all of them, so um, we're just going to go through a couple of them. So let's start with Jesus. What did Jesus think about marriage? If we go and, and we look at a conversation that Jesus is having, he's talking to the religious le leaders of the day, and they're asking him about marriage and divorce, and, and what he did, does is pretty interesting. He doesn't just start spouting off, here's what I think marriage and divorce should look like or shouldn't look like. What he says is, if you want to know what the point of marriage is, you need to go back to the very beginning. And he begins to quote Genesis chapter 2. And he's going through the creation account. Here's how God created man and woman, and here was they had a design for marriage and for sex, and he says, if you want to know what is uh, the purpose, you need to go back to the original design. So it's not like, okay, let's figure out what's currently happening and see if we can kind of work that. No, he says, it's not the way that things are. It, you're supposed to point back to the way things ought to be. And so he lays out this case that marriage and divorce and sex are kind of detailed or laid out for us in Genesis 2, which I think makes sense. This week I... Uh, I was asked by my wife to put together a crib. So our littlest one, he's kind of graduated from this small crib and we had a little bigger one that we had in storage. And so I'd put this one together before and I laid out all the bolts on there and there's like four different sizes and, there's all, and I thought, well, I'm pretty handy. I can figure this out, right? And so I was about to go start putting together the way that I thought it should be. And then I stopped and I think this is a sign of maturity is I went and I got the owner's manual and I said, I think I'm going to save myself a lot of frustration if I would just look at the owner's manual. And that's, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here, is he says, don't go and try to figure this out the way that you think it should operate. Why don't you go look at the original creator, how they designed it, and then you're going to be able to save yourself a lot of frustration and heartache. And so, uh, I realized today that as I walk through this account of marriage and sex and gender and all that, I am going to step on every cultural landmine that there is. As I was researching this week, I go, could I have picked, I got to be honest, I did not pick this topic. Doyle picked this topic and then gave it to me on the sly. He goes, oh yeah, here's our schedule, cool. And I didn't realize it until later. I went, oh, I see what you did there. You get to take the fun ones. Okay, all right, well, let's do this. Uh, so everybody will be offended at some point today. Good. So let's go back to the beginning chapters in Genesis where God is creating the universe and everything in it. We see is creating the stars, sun, moon, planets, animals. And in every act of creation, it says um, that God created, God created, God created, or God said, God said. 
and it's in the singular. But then when it comes to the pinnacle of creation, which is man, things change. Here's what it says. Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so he goes from creating everything in the world as singular, and then when he creates man, it goes to plural. Now, as Christians, we can kind of make sense of this, because we believe that God is a trinity, that it is three persons in one, three distinct persons that are in relationship for eternity past, and they make up the Godhead, one unit. Now, I understand this is kind of a crazy, like, hard-to-wrap-your-mind-around kind of thing, but it makes sense that when he creates something in his image, his plurality would come out. He continues on in the next chapter, Genesis 2, 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God says, okay, we've created man. And, after, and before this, all the other things that God created, he said it was good. But then he creates man and he says, there's something not quite right. And all women ever since have been saying, yes, <laughs> that is true. No, uh, he says it's not quite right, not because there's something wrong, but because he's just not finished yet. He says that um, there, has to be, there has to be a counterpart to this, because again, remember, we're talking about a God that is three persons in one in intimate relationship for eternity past, highly, highly, highly relational. And so if we're made in his image, that means that we are highly relational as well. And so Adam being alone, uh, there was something not quite right. So it continues on and says this in verse 20, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so this, uh, this phrase right here where it says suitable or suitable helper, if you look at it in the original Hebrew, it actually means a complementary helper, which is going to be really important. Because we see that um, when God created Eve, she was an image bearer just like Adam, that she was equal in her value and in her worth, and yet there was something very different about her. She was different, obviously, biologically, but she was also different emotionally and spiritually and relationally. And so what God does is, and this is kind of a really important part, is what God does is when he wants to create a partner for Adam, he does not create a mirror image, but a complementary one, okay? So he doesn't create a mirror image. There's not another Adam. He creates a complementary one, one that complements Adam in all these different ways. Of course, physically complements him, but is also going to complement him emotionally and relationally uh, as well. And again, this is by design. This is a reflection of the Trinity, these three distinct persons that complement each other and become one as a whole. And so I think we can see this in different arenas of our life, uh, one of which is, is parenting, is if you were to come to my house, and I know this is a generalization, but this is how it operates at my house and probably a majority, is if my kids were outside playing and one of them falls and skins their knee and they run back inside, guess who they're gonna go to? Mom, right? You know why? Because mom cares. <laughs> I mean, I care, but like, you get it, you know? I'm like, look, you're like two already, okay? Like enough of these tears. Haven't we outgrown this already? But, but if the kids want to wrestle, guess who, the, who they're waiting for to get home? Dad. 
Mom's been there available all day to wrestle. For some reason, she's not into it. I don't get it, but when I come home, boom, we're on the ground, we're wrestling, dogpiling, it's a great time. And so there's, there's obviously differences between men and women. And in the scriptures, it says this very thing, is that we were complementary, that we were, we were different, and yet we are equal. And so uh, the complementary design is a, is a reflection of the Trinity, but it's also this reflection, in, it, it is reflected in the church. In the New Testament, it has this weird terminology. It says that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, which is kind of a weird image if you think about it, that Christ is the groom and that we, the church, are, are his bride. In fact, in Ephesians 5, it quotes this Genesis account, but then there's a twist. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And then this is weird. This is the profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So he takes this, this idea of men and women and them coming together as a whole, and then he says, now that image is the image of Christ and his church. And what he's trying to say here is there's this complementarity between the two, is they're both, they're both distinct, they're both different, and yet they belong together. And this idea of complementarity is presupposed throughout the entire scriptures. It's presupposed in the Trinity and in the church and in mankind. And so uh, as we talk about gender, especially within today's culture, this is a hot topic, right? This is controversial. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't agree with anything you have to say. And here's the good news, is this has been a, a topic of controversy for a very long time, but for different reasons. So if you went back to the first century, and we talked about this last week a little bit, if you went back to the first century, this idea that men and women are different and yet equal was controversial. But it was because men didn't believe that women were equal, they were seen as second-class citizens. They were sometimes seen as kind of slaves. And so to think that a woman was equal to a man in that culture was ridiculous. And then Jesus comes along and he says, not only are they made in God's image and both are equal, but I died for them equally. They're all welcome to be citizens in the kingdom of God. And so people were having a really difficult time thinking, wait a minute, you're trying to tell me that men and women are, are different and yet equal? We have the same problem, except ours is the opposite now. We have no problem believing that men and women are equal. The problem is, are they different? Because popular culture would tell us, no, they're not different. Maybe physiologically they're different, but that's kind of up for a debate now as well, is there really isn't a difference between men and women. They are essentially the same. And so it's always been a hot topic that people have been, uh, have been wrestling with. And here's the good news, is if this is something that you go, oh, wow, that's that's hitting pretty close to home. Maybe it's you, maybe it's a loved one, and, and you think, I, I, I struggle with that, that whole gender identity thing, and man, I'm not sure where. The good news is that you're not alone, because although not everybody struggles with sexual identity, we all have identity issues. <laughs> Every single one of us in this room would say, I have identity issues, I have value issues, I have worth issues, and here's the, here's the reason, is because all of us are broken in this room. The reason why we are here as Christians is because we realize that we're broken, not because we think that we've got it all together. And so if that is you or that's somebody that you love, the good news is that we're all in the same boat as you. Maybe it's a, a, different, uh, a different issue, but we all at the root cause have the same problem. We're broken. And so the good news is that you're amongst friends. We're not here to judge you or to condemn you or to say, oh my goodness, you're... No, we would say welcome to the club. Come and be a part of it. We're all a bunch of messes here. 
I can point out some to you. Um, Genesis 2, 24 continues on. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and he is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And then Jesus quotes this and he adds this at the end. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so there's this idea of one flesh and immediately our mind goes to, to the physical, to the sex. But what it's really talking about is it's talking about marriage. Is one flesh is this uniting of these two separate distinct individuals into one, a married couple. And I think the best way to, to kind of illustrate this is, uh, and maybe it's because of the life stage I'm in, but it's with Play-Doh, is I was trying to think about, like, what does this look like? And my kids love Play-Doh. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't last very long, so we keep having to buy it over and over again. And it's not because it, like, evaporates or disappears or they eat it. Well, one of them does, but for the most part, that's not the issue. The issue is is as soon as they open up a fresh pack of Play-Doh, you know what the first thing that they want to do is? They want to squeeze it. What are they, then what? We want to mash them together, right? Oh, look at that, right? And so all the Play-Doh lasts for about mm, one session, and then we got to throw it away. We've got to go to Target, and we've got to get a new one. And the reason is because when you take these two distinct parts and you put them together as a whole, it becomes something far more beautiful than it was on its own. And that's the picture that God had intended for man and for woman, was that for these two complementary and yet distinct parts coming together to make one unit, and it's supposed to be this beautiful picture. And it's not just physically being united, but it's being united in every arena of life, physically and relationally and emotionally, that all of their life was supposed to be intertwined like this, so they become a married couple. You know what else he didn't intend? He says this at the end. Is he says, I never intended it for, to be separate. When it, once it comes together, this was supposed to be it. Because you know what happens when you try to separate this? You ever try to pull Play-Doh apart? Oh, it's a mess. There are pieces that get left behind. And, and I think every person that has experienced divorce, either in their own life or within their family, would say, yes, it is a mess. Divorce is a nasty thing. I, I don't think anyone would deny, Christian or not, we would all say, yeah, it's a messy, messy deal. It's because it was always intended to be together like this. Now, again, this was the ideal. We live in a broken world, and so we experience less than ideal all the time, but that was supposed to be the picture. So part of uniting as one whole is uniting physically. That's, that's the sex part. And so the, the following verse, verse 25, says this, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this may surprise you, especially if you're not a church person, but God is very much pro-sex. He's about it. In fact, he created, it was his idea. He did not like look down and go, Adam, what, what are you doing? Get off of her. No, no. He, he knew what he was doing. He understood. Think about the context of Genesis 1 and 2. You have this picturesque garden. It's like your own private island. You know, you are just there, and you, it's beautiful, and then he puts you in it, and you're naked. And by the way, this is like pre-fast food. This is pre-fall, so you got that beach body, and it's on point. <laughs> he puts you two together. You're naked in this beautiful, uh, with this beautiful scenery, and I would, this isn't in the Bible, but I wouldn't be surprised if he put some nice background music on for you, okay? <laughs> 
And then he finished off and he says, now go and be fruitful and multiply. What? Yeah, he, dude, that sounds awesome, right? That was the original intention. That's what he wanted for us. He was about sex. He created it and it was a beautiful thing and still is. But he said, it's a fragile thing as well. And so you have to use it according to some very specific instructions. And so to understand the kind of the, the idea that he had in mind, I think we got to back up a little bit and we got to understand this theological context, or, uh, concept. And it's called a covenant. So a covenant, you, if you read through the Bible, you may see it in different places. Uh, actually, Old Testament, New Testament simply means Old Covenant and New Covenant. And God would have these covenants, and he would either be in a covenant with an individual or with a group of people. And what a covenant is, is it is God entering into this very intimate and personal relationship with someone. And he reveals things about himself, and he expects them to be faithful, and that it's like it's like a binding kind of legal thing, but it's also a very uh, emotional, loving, affectionate thing. And, and in this covenant, um, in this covenant, we would see that there, there would be this intimacy. Well, when the Bible talks about marriage, it says that the scripture, or it says that, the, that marriage is really a covenantal relationship. That when husband and wife, they stand together, hand in hand before God, that they're entering into a covenant together. And this covenant is supposed to be where their life is fully united. And then sex becomes, uh, sex becomes this physical representation of what they have done with their whole life. And so I have given you full life disclosure. I have exposed myself emotionally and, and relationally that I have become vulnerable in every arena of my life. And so therefore, I represent that with what I'm doing with my body. The Bible ethic, I think, could be summarized as this. Do not do with your body what you have not done with your whole life. Do not do with your body what you have not done with your whole life. Now, this is very different than what culture would advocate or, or would propose as uh, kind of the purpose of marriage and sex. And let me just run through three kind of quick general views, I think, that culture has on sex. The first view would be that sex is an appetite. It's just this natural appetite. It's kind of like being hungry, you just got to go and you, you fulfill that desire. It's just a physical act that we participate in. The problem with this view is that if it's just a physical act, why is it that something like physical abuse, which is in itself a horrible thing, is not as traumatic as sexual abuse? They're both just physical acts, but why is it that the sexual abuse has such more, has long-term uh, impact on us? I've been a pastor for a while now, and I have people pretty much every, every week and come up to me and, you know, struggles and stuff that they're going through. And sometimes someone will come up to me and say, you know, I just, I'm struggling with the shame and this guilt. And about five years ago, I just did something that I just can't forgive myself. I just can't get over it. You know what I've never heard them say? Yeah, I just, I got a speeding ticket five years ago and I just can't get past it. I've never heard that before. 100% of the time, it is always something sexual, something that was done to them or by them. It is always be, because there's something that, about the sexual that is more than this physical. It's something very emotional, but it's almost something that hits at a soul level as well. 
Another thing is if it isn't just a natural appetite, I, I think things have gotten out of control. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration. He says, imagine that we flew to uh, another planet, and there's a civilization just like ours. But as we observe the civilization, we see that on all of their billboards and their magazines, and they have a multi-billion dollar industry of movies, and everything is about watching people eat cheeseburgers. You would rightly say that there is something that has gone wrong with the appetite on this planet that they have a, a sick obsession with cheeseburgers. Now, let's say that they came back with us and they said, well, let's look at your culture, and they walk around and they have the same thing except just it's sexual now. The magazines and the movies, and they would also say there's something that has gone wrong with your appetite for sex. And so if it is an appetite, which I think in part, yes, it's natural, it's an appetite, it is an appetite that has gone dangerously wrong. Second view is sex as affection, and this is kind of opposite from the first view. The idea is that sex is an expression of mutual love and affection. You hear people say, well, it's okay to have sex if you really love them. And this is about how you feel inside. It's an emotion that you feel from someone, for someone. But the problem is, if it's about emotion, you become a slave to either your or their emotions. You're always trying to impress and perform and satisfy and make them happy. And so statistics show that a vast majority of people in America, they will have sex in a relationship in order to keep that relationship moving because they know that if they stopped having sex, the relationship would be over. So one of the things I do as a, when I'm doing premarital counseling for people who want to get married, first question I ask them is, are you guys sleeping together? Okay, are you living together? Tell me what's going on. And if they are, you got to stop that. The only way that I'm going to marry you is if you stop sleeping together. I say, okay, I guess, you know, we'll give it a shot, see what happens. And fast forward a month or so, and they stop sleeping together, and I'll sit down for our second meeting, and that is a different relationship. Oh, I just wish you could be there. It's hilarious. Because they'll just be like, I've, lit I've literally had people go, I don't think it's going to work out. I don't think we're meant to be together anymore. Because here's what happens, is before, while they are having turbulence in their relationship, they would cover it up by going and having sex. But then when you took that out, they had to start dealing with one another. They had to start looking at the relationship. The fog kind of cleared up a little bit, and they went, oh, this isn't, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. The last one is sex as a, a fulfillment. Sex is how we express who we are, live out our truth, our sexual identity. In the end, it's really how um, we find happiness and fulfillment, or a way we find happiness and fulfillment. And if sex is a way that we feel good, that we feel fulfilled, that we feel adored and wanted and loved or powerful, it's really just a selfish act. Sex is self-serving, and it was never designed to be self -serving. It was always supposed to be about the other, and when it becomes about your own fulfillment, it's destructive. This is also why masturbation and pornography is so destructive, because it is totally selfish, and our, our, our sex and our desires were always supposed to be in order to serve the other. C.S. Lewis explains why sex outside of marriage just doesn't work. It says the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. And so he's saying is sex is, is an incredible thing and it's this way to be unified with your partner, but it's only in the context of having your life be unified. It's only a context of full life disclosure that you should be disclosing yourself physically. 
And so when we misuse gifts that God gives us, there's always going to be consequences. Something's going to break. And so just imagine, you don't have to be a Christian to, to agree with this. Let's just imagine for one moment that everybody in the world, they decided to just follow this one rule. They don't even believe in anything else, just this one rule that sex is for marriage and marriage only. Can you imagine how the world would change? Can you imagine what kind of world we would live in? Here's the things that we would, we would get rid of. Uh, sexual abuse, abortion, m- almost all divorce, and almost uh, or a large majority of single-parent homes. We would avoid a ton of pain and shame and guilt and jealousy and regret and anger. Our world could be drastically changed if we just followed this one rule. Not any of the other rules in the Bible, just the one when it talks about sex. And because we don't, we see consequences. We see it in our own lives, and we see it in the world around us. So here's kind of the underlying kind of assumption that's happening, is all of this, I think, can be boiled down to one thing. What we think about marriage and sex, all this can come down to one question. And that question, from it flows all the other views. It's a big question. It's what's the purpose of life? Because whatever you think the purpose of life is, then you're going to think that the purpose of marriage and sex is going to be uh, aligned with that. And so most people would say, well, the purpose of life is, is personal happiness or personal uh, satisfaction. And so when it comes to sex and marriage, it, those things should make me happy as well. And so sex, if it makes me happy, I should go and have sex with as many people as I desire because it makes me happy. And marriage, if, if I'm not happy in a marriage, well, then I should get out of it. I can exit a marriage easier than I can exit a car lease. And if it's just about personal happiness, then anyone should be able to marry whoever they want. This also shapes who we decide to marry. Because if it's about personal happiness, then we should go and find a spouse that we believe is going to bring the most personal happiness into our life. And so we look for somebody who's got money and who's good looking and powerful and And yet the scripture would say, it's not about personal satisfaction. Yeah, that's good, and that's going to be a part of it, but what the purpose of life is, is is about personal, and this is a big theological word, sanctification. What it really means is it's about becoming more like Jesus. It's about following Him. It's about glorifying Him. And so if that's the purpose of life, not just simple uh, happiness, then it's going to change how we view marriage and sex, and so it's going to change who we marry. So instead of me looking for a person who I believe is going to bring me more happiness because I am more uh, money and power and influence, now I start looking at, well, what kind of character do they have? What's their faith look like? Like, yes, I, of course, I'm going to be attracted to them, and I want, to, they want, I want them to have ambition, and we need to be, but like the top priority is going to be, who are they becoming, and who are they going to help me become? Are, are they pushing me to become more like Jesus? If I look at uh, who I've become in the last 10 or so years that Amy and I have been married, I think about all the ways that she has shaped me. She, she is definitely, the, besides my relationship with God, she is the second most important person in my life, and she is the one that has, has shaped me the most. As she's, you know, trying to smooth out some of these rough edges, and, you know, you think, wow, she's got a long way to go. Yeah, you should see where I was. Um, and, and hopefully I'm doing the same for her. I think that even in the the tough times in our marriage where maybe we're having some conflict or whatever, just part of the deal, if the point of my marriage was to make me happy, in those times of conflict, I'm going, well, I'm very unhappy, and so I'm done. But if the point is to become more like Jesus, every conflict becomes an opportunity for me to become a little bit more like Him. It also becomes a big signpost for the people around us. 
That as we're wrestling through things and as we're aligned in our purpose and we're going in the same direction and it's that our marriage and our life seems to operate different than everybody around, they're going to look at us and go, what's different about them? Why is their marriage so different? And we get to go, oh, because the purpose of our life is not for us to just simply be happy. It's for us to know Jesus and to bring other people into relationship with him. And so that's why our marriage looks a little bit different than everybody else's. This is also why the scripture is so serious about Christians only dating and marrying other believers, is because if your purpose in life is to follow Jesus and become more like him, and then you marry somebody who they have a a different purpose in life, what's going to happen is one of two things. Either as you pursue Christ and they pursue something else, that that marriage is going to experience incredible tension as you move in different directions, or something's got to give, and you've got to go in their direction, and you've got to sacrifice your relationship with Christ in order to stay close to them. I think uh, this also explains why the scripture says a high, has such a high view of marriage, but it also has such a high view of singleness. Is if you read Paul, he's kind of he's kind of a little bit. Uh, confusing when it comes to marriage and to singleness. Because in one chapter, he'll talk about marriage, and here's the beautiful picture, and you've got Christ in the church, and here's how you have a great marriage. And then the next chapter, you'll go, he'll go, this is why you shouldn't be married. This is why I'm not, and you shouldn't be either. And you're like, dude, do you just get a bad breakup? Like, what's the deal, Paul? And because here's, here's, here's his point. You should do whatever is going to help you become more like Jesus. So if that means that you should get married because you are going to be able to help your spouse and they're going to help you become more like Jesus, then get married. But if you can be single and you can strive to be more like Jesus, you can stay focused, you don't have as many concerns, well, then you should be single. His point is that marriage and sex are not the point. They're only supposed to be a pointer to the point. They were always supposed to be something that makes you more like Jesus and points you towards him. Because that intimacy that you experience in those relationships, no matter how good they are, they're never supposed to be the point. They were always supposed to be just a pointer to the intimacy that you can have with your creator. And so it has this view that, should you get married? Sure. Should you stay single? Yeah. You should do whatever makes you more like Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked about uh, marriage and, and heaven, and he says, is there, uh, they're asking him, is there marriage in heaven? And he says, no, because it's not the point. It's a great thing. It's a great gift, but it's a pointer to the point. All right, so let me, let me finish with this. Is, as we sit here and, man, we hit some really tough topics, I think everybody in here is probably, if you're being honest, thinking, I have, I have failed in most, if not all, of those areas. As I think about the ideal for marriage and for sex and for gender and for, oh, gosh, I just, I think about that. I have I've messed up pretty royally, myself included. And so let me talk to a few different groups here. First group is you feel that because you're in the middle of that. That you know there's, you're calling yourself a believer and you're following Jesus or you want to, but there is something in your life. You're living with them, you're sleeping with them, you're looking at that thing on the computer, whatever it may be, and you know, oh, you know, this is not what I was supposed to, this is not what God intended. And so here's what Jesus would say. Again, don't shoot the messenger. Here's what Jesus would say if that's you. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. <laughs> Bummer, right? <laughs> You're kind of like, that's something Jesus would be like, dude, I get it. It's hard. <laughs> Just go try harder, dude. It'll be fine. No, he says you got to be pretty ruthless 
If there's sexual immorality in your life, you have to be ruthless with that. If that means you got to get into a new group of friends, you got to get into a rooted group, do it. If it means you got to throw your computer out the window, do it. If it means you have to break up with that person, do it. Because eventually, it's going to destroy you. Eventually, it's going to consume you. He says, the consequence of this is that something's going to die, because that's always the consequence of sin. And so he says, get ruthless with it, like it's a cancer in your life. There's another group of us, and, and by the way, if that is you, the next step is to get rid of that stuff and then just repent. It means I'm done with this, I'm turning away, and then you ask for forgiveness. And here's the great thing, is that it is instantaneous. You will be forgiven, and God says, you're clean, we're good. There's another group of us who, you know, we're, we're a little bit of a distance away from that lifestyle and from some of those real serious issues, and yet it haunts us. If we're sitting there and we're alone and we start to think about life and maybe our mind wanders a little bit, we start to think about some of the things that we've done in the past and an incredible amount of shame and guilt start to just consume us. Here's the good news for you. Is that shame and that guilt, that's not from God. That's the enemy trying to pull you away from that grace and that forgiveness and put you into that pit of guilt and shame. And in those moments, you get to say, nope, I've been freed from that. I don't have to carry that burden anymore because every time you try to put that burden back on your shoulders of that shame and guilt, what you're saying is, Jesus, your sacrifice was not big enough to be able to take this. And so I'm going to need to take it back from you because your sacrifice wasn't enough. Let me take it. And what you're really saying is, your, your death isn't enough. And so in those moments, you get to say, that's not, that's not from God. I've been forgiven of that. I'm free from that. That guilt and that shame is no longer a, a, a part of who I am and something I have to carry. And if you are here and you're just, one, wondering why you picked this weekend to be here and how you got into this mess, and you're walking out of here going, I disagree with every single thing that that guy just said up there, here's the good news. Here's the good news. You are still so welcome here. You can come and hang out with us. In fact, you don't have to agree with anything that we say in order to be loved by us. Because if we had to agree about everything, no one would be here. In fact, I wouldn't be here because I don't even agree with half the stuff I say. <laughs> and so, if you are in that boat and you're just checking this thing out and you're not sure, look, look, you don't have to agree. That's great. We're glad that you're here. In fact, um, you're in a place that is full of a bunch of people who know that they're jacked up and that they need help and they can't do it themselves. That's why we've come to Jesus. And so if that is you, we want to welcome you to this community, and we say, we're going to help you struggle. Whatever your struggles look like, whatever your stuff may be, whatever, you're not going to scare us. You're not going to tell us anything that's going to surprise us. We're all a disaster. And so you're welcome in this community, because here's the deal. This place is for people who are broken, who are confused, and we're going to do this life thing together as we pursue Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for, we thank you for your grace as we think about these tough topics and, and Many of us have fallen short, in, uh, especially when it comes to sex and it comes to marriage and relationships. And, and yet, Lord God, you say that your grace is sufficient, that whatever we bring to you, no matter how embarrassing, how, how shameful it might be, that you have forgiven us, Lord God. And so we don't have to carry that burden any longer. And so, Lord God, my prayer is that as we look at the ideal for what you had for, for marriage and for sex, Lord God, that although we fall short, that you would help us to become the people that you have designed us to be. So, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.